wife not here because she, her allergies are out of control. I tell you that because I've got her on speakerphone, which means with her sneezing and coughing, you may hear some weird noises coming from her front. <laughs> so just give you a little heads up on that one. Everybody says hi, Ruth. Yeah, hi. She's not responding. Anyway, so we're in chapter 8 this morning of the book of Amos. If you haven't turned there yet, please do so. And uh, before we get started, obviously there's chapter 8. We're Lord willing to get all the way through chapter 8 today. And next week, of course, we have chapter 9. I'm not yet decided if I'm going to do all of 9 next week or not. Here's the plan going forward. Actually, two weeks from now. Next week, I won't be here. Next week, Andrew's preaching. I'll be up in Boston for the Boston Marathon. And so next week, um, Andrew will be preaching. And so two weeks from now, I will be uh, in Chapter 9. It will be one or two weeks in Chapter 9. At that point in time, I'm going to give a couple uh, mini, uh, not mini, but a couple independent messages. I'm going to present a couple independent messages, at which point in time, Lord willing, at that point in time, we're going to go into the book of Acts. And we're going to study the book of Acts, which is 28 chapters, so we'll be there for a while probably. Although it's big sections for the most part. Um, but we'll be in the book of Acts for a while. Let's have a word of prayer and then we can get into Amos chapter 8 this morning. Lord, help us again as we consider this book, this uh, message from, or the series of messages from Amos, the prophet, to the people of the ten northern tribes of Israel. Help us that we will understand. Help us by your spirit to be able to comprehend the truth of these words and to be able to see how these words, this message of chapter 8 applies to us and has import and impact on our lives. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to repent and move on to worship and to glorying in you. In your name I pray. Amen. And of course, I'm trying to call me. Sorry about that. All right, so we are in chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 1. I just want to read it to you, and then we will start working our way through the chapter. Starting in in verse 1 of chapter 8. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over? That we may sell grain. And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff for wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. Well, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Just an aside. Partial fulfillment? Yes, exactly. Uh, Continuing in verse 10. I will make it like the morning for an only son, and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord. 
they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. This is the fifth vision that Amos is presenting uh, to the people, although it's possible, and maybe even probable, we're not really sure, but it's possible and maybe even probable that this vision is being presented to the high priest of, um, of Bethel, whose name is Amaziah. Uh, obviously, in the previous message we saw God, or, I'm sorry, Amos, well, God, Amos speaking to Amaziah the high priest. That was verses nine, uh, sorry, verse ten through the end of the chapter of chapter seven. And in that section we saw last week, we found at least a section from ten to, to through seventeen. We saw a personal vision, as in a vision personally for Amaziah himself, because he has rejected repentance and rejected the message from Amos, God's man, God's prophet. It could very well be that this vision is also being presented to Amaziah, but not for him personally, although it includes him, but for the whole of the people. But it also is very possible that it's a whole different setting later on, a few, maybe a few days, a few weeks later, where he's presenting this to the whole body of people who are willing to listen. So it could be either one. Either way, it's intended for the corporate ten northern tribes of Israel. There's some weird things in the text that we're going to work through and try to understand, because some things don't seem to mesh. And we'll try to help them mesh a little bit. Uh, there's also some interesting figures of speeches going on here that we'll recognize as well. Let me just lay it out in general for you. The, the text starts out with the vision. And the vision is found in verses uh, 1 through 3. That's the, that's the vision. In this vision, obviously, it's a vision of condemnation. What happens afterwards, we find Amos then turning to the people and interpreting the vision, as it were. And so he, first of all, explains what this means, as in um, why. We put it this way. Why the condemnation, or the, the, the reason for the condemnation? That's the next thing that comes. Because the condemnation is really clear in 1 through 3. So after that, he explains the reason for the condemnation. And then after the reason for the condemnation... He begins to unpack the various ways in which God is going to bring this condemnation to pass. Does that make sense? There's three main ways he describes how it's going to come to pass, and it concludes with the final result of the, the condemnation seen in the fifth vision. It is interesting, if I can just give this as a, in the beginning before we get into the text, it is interesting that when Amos gives this vision, and the interpretation of the vision to the people, or to Amaziah for the people, either way, it's in the best of times. Once again, as we've talked about every time, it's in the best of their times. And in fact, the vision doesn't actually come to its ultimate fulfillment for probably about three decades after Amos gives the, gives the vision and the interpretation of the vision. About three decades, most likely, Give or take. Now, in about a decade or two, it's going to start getting worse suddenly. The beginning, if you may put it this way, uh, the initial experiences of pain begin to start happening. And they will last for a good 20 years before the final conclusion comes and rushes on them suddenly. So it's not like that life is good for them for from this statement by Amos to the point when suddenly, out of the, out of the blue, in comes Assyria. That's not how it happens in 722 B.C. For about 20 years beforehand, Assyria begins to oppress them in greater and greater and greater ways. Life begins to get more and more and more difficult for them. Progressive or digressively worse and worse and worse till finally 722 BC comes and the end comes. Why is that interesting? Why do I bring that to, to the table? The reason why I bring that to the table for your understanding is because in the midst of all this condemnation that we're seeing, and there's a lot of it, isn't there? I mean, it's a pretty dark book. And in the whole discussion of remnant, we see 
A hundred go, ten come back. A thousand go, a hundred come back. One out of ten survive the onslaught in the end. In that house, in that picture in that house. So the remnant idea in Amos is, although strong and there, it's still the storyline of Amos is really dark. What I find intriguing at this late date in Amos, here we are in chapter 8, is that Amos is making these prophecies, that he's declaring these prophecies through these visions that are so stark and so um, specific. And yet God still is long-suffering, isn't he? He still gives them approximately 30 years to repent and follow Jesus, follow God. Repent and believe. Gives them 30 years. What is stunning historically and biblically is that's not what happens. It's 30 years of what do you think? Repentance or no repentance? No repentance. In spite of everything. And even shortly after Amos, Micah and Isaiah prophesied down in Judah. And both mention Israel. Although their focus is purely and simply upon Judah. They both mention them. And even that, at that late date, they, they're still no response. None. No response at all. So that brings us to the text this morning. The vision itself. Verses 1 through 3, I'll read it again. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. That's the, that's the entirety of the vision. So going back to verse 1. And, and two, he says, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. So basically the entirety of the vision, other than the words that are being presented to Amos in the vision from God, is behold, a, summer, a basket of summer fruit. That's what he sees in his vision, correct? A basket of summer fruit. Now, what's the significance of the basket of summer fruit? That's a really important question because it will explain everything as it flows from there. The basket of summer fruit is, 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 especially in the Middle East, but it only makes sense to us here, is a very important perspective. Because when he talks about here the basket of summer fruit, Amos says, I see a basket of summer fruit. What's he talking about? Here's what he's talking about. There are many, many things that take place in the, in the spring and summer. And it's just like here. There, from, from here on all summer long to the end of summer and into early fall here, we are finding ourselves laden, is it, it, wouldn't it be, with what? The opportunity to buy fruit, right? During the winter, we're buying old fruit or stuff that's grown in chili, in chili or someplace like that, exactly, or in hothouses or something like that. In the biblical times, and this concept here where he says, I see a basket of summer fruit, what he's talking about, we're in Amos chapter 8. Hello, good to see you. In Amos chapter 8, he, he's saying here in verse 1, he sees a basket of summer fruit, and the summer fruit perspective is so important because what that's all about is it's not just any fruit. The vision he's having is not just about fruit generic. It's about fruit in its fullest. Fruit in its ripest. Fruit in its most flavorful. Fruit in its most valuable time. In its most satisfying time. And it's a basket full of summer fruit. In other words, the best way to put it, it's the best of the fruit. That's what Amos sees in his vision. It's the best of the fruit. That sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? I mean, the vision starts out sounding really good. For example, this is really easy. Do you like peaches 
Anybody here like peaches? Do you like them when they're hard and flavorless? Like when they're picked too early and you can buy them in the market. You ever buy those in the market? You take them home, it's like, they're not supposed to sound like that. Are they? Or do you like them when, when the juice is running down your elbows? It's running down your chin, or if it's Charles, it's running down your beard. Is that the way you like it? Isn't that the way you like it? The flavor is just explosive. This sounds like a great vision. I kind of like want to have some peaches right now. So Amos verse 2 says, when God says, what do you see? He says, I see a, a basket of summer fruit. Amos is pointing to his product. What? Then the Lord said to me, everything goes south really quickly. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people. Like, how'd you get there? Right? How'd you jump from a basket of summer fruit to the end has come upon my people? Well, there's two ways you can understand this. Two, and they're both right. On the one hand... The best of the fruit, use peaches for example, the best of fruit is great, right? But what does that mean? It's going to rot quick, that's true, but what else does it mean? It's the end of it. There's no more what? There's no more good fruit coming. It's ended. This is it. Now, historically, remember, when Amos is ministering up in Israel, it's the best of times or worst of times. It's the best of times. Life is good. Life is better than it's ever been for the ten northern tribes. It's the best of times. So on the one hand, the idea is, here's the best of times. But what comes after, don't forget. Especially in that day, because they didn't have chili to go get more peaches. And they didn't have nice, nice train cars to fill it with hydrogen or whatever it is, nitrogen, whatever they put in there, to keep the fruit fresh forever, it seems like. They didn't have that. So when, when, when that crop ran out, there's no more peaches till next summer. And so the idea here, it, when God says the end has come, on one hand is, oh, yeah, you got the best of times, and you're hoping that'll continue, but understand it's not. The end has come. In Hebrew, there's a play on words here, which is really intriguing, because the word basket, uh, um, basket of fruit, <coughs> summer basket of fruit, the word in the Hebrew is really close to and actually when it's spoken sounds the same as the end. So God is playing in the Hebrew, playing with words here and, and, and saying, you're thinking it's good. I'm telling you it's really bad. And so the Lord said to me, Amos says, the end has come upon my people. One other thing that's really interesting about the statement is the word choice here. The end has come upon my people. It's not the natural way of things. It's not the end has come for my people. The idea is, no, it is being brought upon my people. The end has come upon my people. It's a very active thing. The end is actively being brought upon them. This is not just the natural way of things. Although it's going to seem natural in the end. Correct? I mean, how many nations eventually end because somebody conquers them. Just about all of them. So it's going to seem natural, and God is saying, no, it is definitely not natural. This is actively coming from your God. The end has come upon my people. And then he adds to it in verse uh, 2, I will never pass by them again. And that goes back to chapter 8. And it also goes back to where? Remember, Andrew, you and I talked about it. Where? And all the way back to Exodus, absolutely. It takes us all the way back to Exodus, doesn't it? When he says, I will, I will, what? I will pass over. If you put the blood on the doorpost and lintel, and I will, in effect, pass through the Egyptians. They're going to die. They're going to pass over you. You will not die. This is a play off of that. When he says, once again, like he saw in chapter, we saw in chapter 7, the same idea. 
I will never pass by them again. It's pass by them in blessing. Now, there is a qualifier because in chapter 9, he talks about future blessing for Israel. We'll get into that next week. But he says here, I will never pass by them again. In other words, these, path, these people's doom is sure. It's going to happen. Verse 3 in, in, in the uh, vision, the songs of the, God says, the songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. And then he says what the song, the, the, the wailing will actually sound like, the words of the wailing. So the songs of the temple, and by the way, that could also, the word temple could also mean um, um, the, uh, well, I'm full of blank on the word, but where the king would be, the Palace, thank you. Well, full of blank. It could be either one. And most likely it's ambiguous, so most likely it's both. The end shall come upon my people. I will never pass by them again. The songs of the temple or the songs of the palace shall become wailings in that day. And the picture is one of a sudden change. Declares the Lord God. And the, the, the wailing that comes is a horrific thing. And it will be so many dead bodies, which the picture is death everywhere. Death everywhere. So many dead bodies, they are thrown or cast away everywhere. <coughs> and then the vision concludes with a single word, silence. And the picture, especially on that, on that final word, silence, is this. Those who remain or who are in the midst of the death coming are looking around and, they are, and the judgment coming are, are looking around and seeing so many dead bodies. So many. They are thrown everywhere. And everywhere that there was, was noise and laughter and trading and marketplace and hanging out with others and recreating with others and laughing with others, there's now only silence. The death is so complete. The destruction is so complete. The judgment is so complete. And that's the vision. Then Amos turns to the people or to Amaziah toward the people and says this, Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make uh, the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat? Let me go through uh, this, this section real quickly and explain the pieces, and then we'll bring it all together. Remember what's going on. We saw it in chapter 2 of Amos. One of the major problems that, that God singles out through Amos toward the people of the ten northern tribes is this. They are treating the downtrodden, the people who don't have any voice or have little voice. They're treating them grotesquely unfairly. They're dominating them. They're ripping them off. They are manipulating the laws and the courts so that to their own end. This is what their, their problem, their primary problem is that, that Amos identifies. And he returns to that in, in chapter 8. Hear this, you who trample on the needy. The ones who, by God's covenant that he cut for you at Mount Sinai, by that law, God tells you exactly how to care for the needy in every way. Instead of following what God says, you do what? You trample over them. You use them as traction under your feet, as it were, just to get you where you need to go. And you bring the poor of the land to an end, to the point of their very death, and you don't even care. And then from the discussion of, we're going to come back to it in just a second, with, from the discussion of the treatment of the needy, he turns to the thing that's more central, even than that, in the book of Amos. In verse 5, he says, 
They're saying, these same people are saying something. And what are they saying something about? They're saying something about worship. About Yahweh worship. What are they saying? Here's what they're saying. When will the new moon be over that we may what? Sell grain. You see, during the new moon festival, they would have to stop, by the law, they have to stop selling at the marketplace. So for a short period of time, they would stop. But these people, were their hearts into worship? No. Were they doing the things of worship? Yes. They were doing the stuff of worship. They were going through the rituals of worship. But instead of worshiping, truly worshiping in spirit, what were they thinking about? Selling their product. When is this going to be over so that we can sell grain? And then getting even tighter than just the occasional new moon worship, or not new moon worship, new moon festival, they get down to the every week Sabbath and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale. Is the Sabbath over yet? Is it over? Can I open the market again? And then he goes on in verse 5, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great. What does that mean? Well, an ephah was about three-fifths of a bushel. When they say, when can we get back to market when we can make the ephah small? What do you think that means? What? Going to rip them off? How? They're going to try to. They're saying it's a bushel. It's not. And they're it, charging extra. They're saying it's an apple, which is three fifths of a bushel. You're right. And instead, they've shrunk it down to maybe a quarter of a bushel or a third of a bushel. So ripping the who are they ripping off? The poor people. <clears throat> that we may sell the apple small and make the shekel and the shekel great. What do you think it means? And make the shekel, or have the shekel being great. What does that mean? You're overcharging them. You're making a whole lot, a whole lot more than you should, right? So you're ripping them off by giving them less and taking more, and deal deceitfully with false balances. Not only that, you're playing games with your balances that you weigh with. You're putting the wrong amount of rocks on, as it were, to screw up the balances to make even more money. Verse 6, that we may buy the poor with silver and the needy with a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. It gets even worse. Because the idea here is, oh, when, when will the new moon festival be over? And when will, the, when will the Sabbath be over so finally we can get back to market and open up our shop again and start ripping people off more and more and more because the end result is they're going to become more and more impoverished, aren't they? They're going to become more and more impoverished, and eventually they're going to become so impoverished that they're going to come to my marketplace. They're going to say, we need wheat. Well, what do you got? And they're going to say what? The, the poor people are going to say what? We have nothing. We have nothing. And they're going to say, well, we got a great solution for you. You can become our slaves, indebted to us. And the answer will be, well, what will you give us to do that? We'll give you a little bit of silver. Initially, a little later, maybe just a pair of sandals. And then it still isn't as bad, because they have to do it. Right? Have to do it, because you have nothing. And then you can work in our field, gathering what? Wheat. And then, at the end of the day, with a little amount you have, because I gave you a little bit of silver, gave you a pair of sandals, you still need to eat, right? So now I'll sell you what? I'll sell you the chaff. And that's all you're going to get. Continuous oppression. Now, let's go back through 4 through 6 a little bit. I want to be brief about it, but at the same time, I want to make sure that we can understand it. In Amos' day, the problem, the major problem, was twofold. Number one, not in any order, actually it's the opposite order. I'm going in his order here. Number one was they're mistreating people, correct? They're violating the law by mistreating people. Number two, it is their worship was 
mere ritual. It was not from the heart. They were not caught up in their God. They, they weren't loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Quite to the contrary, they were loving something else. Now, it's very easy to look at the text and just say, well, it's, as we talked about before, it's just a historical text, right? It's a historical story about things that happened in that day. As if we're somehow detached from that because we don't have those kind of scales anymore and we don't uh, rip people up and, tr- and downtrod people anymore. So that must not apply to us, right? No, that's just what was going on in that day. The issue is primarily front and center, the lack of worship. Why would people not treat others that are also in the covenant, why would they not treat them well? Well, the answer is pretty obvious in the text. Because they're not loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So even though in that day the primary, the secondary, second primary problem was this idea of mistreating the, the downtrodden and needy does not isolate it from all other aspects that flow out of people's lives because they don't love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was just their problem. It's an important problem to identify. But the real point of Amos is the idea that the people in Amos's day were very perfunctive when it comes to worshiping God. They did it, but they did it because the law told them to do it. And they conveniently ignored aspects of the law that didn't fit into what they wanted to do. Sound familiar? It's everywhere in the church. It's everywhere. The issue, and again, as I've said many times, it's very easy to say, yeah, I see it all. There's demons everywhere. No, he's talking to his covenant people about how his covenant people are treating other covenant people. That's the point. And the reason why they're mistreating the covenant, other covenant people is because they're not loving the Lord their God, which is the whole point of the law. And you see it in verse 5 and 6. It's so clear. When is this going to be over? If, if I may give modern examples real quickly. Some easy ones. Really easy. When is the worship going to be over? The game's on. When is the worship going to be over? I got all this stuff planned for the afternoon. Or maybe we'd never say those things or even think those things. But we find ourselves, we come to worship and our heart's not there. Our heart is somewhere else. Our heart, we find over and over and over again, our mind is caught up in something else, even in the midst of what is supposed to be happening in worship. How much more so when we're not at worship? How much more so when we're at work? How much more so when we're we're at home fixing things? When we're at home hanging out with our family? When we're at home recreating or relaxing or whatever? Our heart's not after our God. Our heart's not after our Redeemer. Quite to the contrary. It's after other things. It just shows up in worship too, at corporate worship. It may be oppression before. If it is, wear it. It may be something else. But it's a violation, if I put it this way, not just a violation of the commandments of God, it's a violation of the character of God. It's a violation of who God is. That's the point. Moving into verse 7, the Lord has sworn by the, by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble at this, on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? What we're getting here, interestingly enough, there are several things that are really interesting going on in this little section. First of all, if you remember when we started out in the book of Amos, it was the Amos came to prophesy to the ten other tribes two years after an important event. Does anybody remember what it was? An earthquake. A major earthquake. 
in the midst of this text, it starts out, and he says what? Surely the Lord is sworn by the pride of Jacob. Surely I'll never forget any of their deeds. Shall not, verse 8, the land, what? Tremble on this account. And it says that in light of what just took place. What I'm trying, and we're going to get into just a second more specifically, but what we have in that trembling of the earth two years earlier is a precursor of what is about to happen. Make sense? Amos is playing off of what just happened for what is about to happen. And what he describes in this section of verses is about to happen is a precursor, equally so, of what will ultimately be the day of the Lord. It's, in other words, it's going to be a picture of what ultimately will be the great day of the Lord, the ultimate judgment. So, earthquake is a picture of what, for Amos, he's presenting is going to take place in a little bit, which is a, a, a picture of what will ultimately come in the day of the Lord. Very important that we get that perspective, because this whole section is about that. But notice, as we go back, he starts out in verse 7, says, the, the Lord has sworn by the, what? Pride of Jacob, interesting term. The pride of Jacob. Jacob, we know, referring to the ten northern tribes. But he says he's, he's swearing by the pride of Jacob. Last chapter he said he's swearing by, anybody remember? Himself, basically. He says in last chapter he swore by himself. Elsewhere in the scriptures he swears by the, the glory of Jacob. So there's a number of different terms he uses, but here's the thing we need to understand. Is we're trying to understand what he means by the pride of Jacob. One thing God can never swear by he can't swear by anything less than him. Because for God to swear by something less than him is to elevate the thing less than him above him or himself. So he swears by the greatest thing he can swear, about, swear to, and that is, regarding, and that is himself. What does he mean then when he says here, the Lord has sworn, Amos says, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. It's an interesting turn. Jacob is God's people. Jacob represents a, a large section of God's people. And God is swearing regarding something. He's going to explain what it is in a second. But first it says, the Lord is sworn by the pride of Jacob. What he, what he means when he says, the Lord has sworn, sworn by the pride of Jacob, he is actually being very direct. The word is derisive, is it? Derisive? Derisive. Derisive. Whew, suddenly my mind went blank. I always have to turn to Tom when my mind goes blank. Thanks, Tom. He's being really derisive here. The idea is, who should Jacob have as their great pride? God, right? God called them. God chose them. They weren't a great people. They were who? They're nobody. They're a bunch of unknown nobody slaves in Egypt. And even before then, he called the, the father of the Hebrew people, who was who? Ultimately, Abraham, right? Abraham. And who was Abraham? He was nobody but a moon worshiper. The pride of Jacob was supposed to be who? God. And he swears by the one that they're supposed to be proud about. That God loves them. That God cares about them. What other God is there that speaks to people? What other God is there that, that calls the people unto himself? What other God is there that, that is a promise-making, promise-keeping God? What, is, what other God is there that loves his people with covenant love? There is none. If there's anything or anyone that Jacob should be proud of, it should be their God, Yahweh. But, but the, the term is dripping with sarcasm because in Jacob, that's not their pride. Is it? God's not their pride. God's not the source of, their source of joy. God's not 
what moves them. God's not their reason for getting up in the morning. God's not their reason for living. God has nothing to do with their decision making, their, their, their direction in life, their purpose for living. God has nothing to, to do with that in their, in their way of thinking. And they're just following through in the rituals. Their pride is elsewhere, isn't it? And in the storyline, what's their pride? Money and their business. Their success. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. They're doomed. They're doomed. We've seen this before. They're doomed. That's what it means. They're doomed. Verse 8. Shall not the land tremble on this account? I just mentioned referencing the earthquake. Not saying there's a future earthquake in this day that's coming. The earthquake here most likely that's being being alluded to is playing off of the previous earthquake that caused so much destruction. But the earthquake he's talking about here shall not the land tremble on his account is referencing the thunder and the shaking of the ground when all those troops and all those horses and all those chariots come in and are unstoppable and they will absolutely decimate. Show that the land tremble on this account. What account? That he won't forget their deeds. Shall not everyone mourn who dwells in this land? Oh, yes, they will. And all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. Again, not talking about a literal flood, but the picture is interesting enough that, that, that Amos goes back to Egypt trying to draw their remembrance back to their time in Egypt, correct? Not those actual people, but their ancestors and the stories they've heard about the ancestors and their time in Egypt. The Nile regularly floods, even to this day. It regularly floods. And when it floods, it doesn't flood like, you know, we hear about the floods in like Nebraska and Iowa and along the Mississippi River and Missouri River today. It's not like that. It's a whole lot worse than that. When it floods, when it comes out of its, out of its banks, it regularly does. It absolutely decimates thousands upon thousands of miles every time. Every time. And the picture is one that it is unstoppable. And it is even interesting, even in our, in our era today, you know, if you look at the Mississippi and Missouri and Ohio rivers, they build these levees everywhere. What happens every time? The levees are there 25, 30 feet high to do what? To stop the floods, right? And what happens every time? They fail. They wash away because nothing stands against water. The water always wins. And that's the picture that's being presented here. I will never forget. Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on its account and everyone mourn who dwells in it. And what's going to happen, the devastation is in, in the ten northern tribes is going to be every bit as complete as what happens in the Nile as it comes up and goes down. It will absolutely decimate everything. God's not finished yet. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Again, I said it's a prefiguring figuring of the future ultimate day of the Lord. But in that day, which comes about in 722 B.C., what does he say? I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Now, that could be literal, but a lot of the statements in the text are not. I suspect it isn't. I suspect what he's talking about when he says, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. He's talking about the destruction of Israel is going to be so fast and furious and complete. The fires are going to burn so heavily. The smoke is going to be so thick and the dust and debris that goes up in the air because of the untold numbers of chariots and horses and troops that come piling into the land. They won't even be able to see the sun. And it'll be dark. And instantly in that day, verse 10, I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs. 
every last one will be turned into more into lamentations. And he goes on and says, I will bring sackcloth on every waist. No exceptions. The mourning will be complete. Every waist will be wearing sackcloth, which was the traditional way of mourning. And baldness on every head. That is, they will shave their head in mourning. I will make it like the mourning for an only son. Sons in the Hebrew era, in the ancient Near East, were much, no offense ladies, much more valuable to the to the uh, fathers and mothers than girls were. But the picture he presents is, here's a husband and wife who finally get pregnant, and they have one son, and they can only have one. So it's not like you can have more children. And that children dies. The mourning will be like that. Now, that only presents part of the picture, because as an agrarian society, your only hope of actually functioning successfully in an agrarian society in that day was to have large families. And hopefully, boys. So if all you can have is one boy, then you can survive. If you lose a boy, you're done. I will make it like the morning for an only son, and the end of it like an absolutely bitter day. Verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine. Now he takes another step. Now, up in this section, 9 and 10, he's talking about the emotional response to the horror. Verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread. That's a given, isn't it? Right? That's a given. Not of bread, nor a thirst for water. That's a given. In this kind of destruction he's describing. But of hearing of the word of God. Now this is of the words of God, I'm sorry. Of the words of God. This is probably a twofold thing. A twofold thing going on here. In that day, there is going to be hunger, famine, like they never had before. Well, they've had water and food hunger before. And people will have it again and again. But something different happens in this famine. He says what's going to be different is in this famine, there's going to be a hunger for the words of God. That's interesting. A hunger for the words of God. For the hearing of the words of, of the Lord. He goes on in verse 12. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord. But what? They won't find it. There's going to be a famine of the words of the Lord. Now, this is probably a twofold thing. Number one, they're going to, as life gets worse and worse and worse, they're going to start to respond to it. Okay, get the picture? They've done it repeatedly up to this point in time. God prophesied it in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He said, Deuteronomy chapter 8, he said this. He said, I will bless you if you follow my commandments. I will bless you. But be careful when I bless you because what you will have a tendency to do is you will have a tendency to what? Forget me. And when you forget me, I'll, I'll bring in the curses and it is when I bring in the curses that you will what? Remember me and you will cry out to me. And then I will respond. That's what he says in Deuteronomy 8. What he says here is radically different from that. He says in that day, you're, when life gets really hard, in that day you're going to run everywhere. North, east, sea to sea. And you're going to be running everywhere trying to figure out, i got to hear from God. And when you do, you know what you're going to find? There's no prophets. There's no prophets. No prophets bring any message. Why? Well, a simple reason why. Because you rejected the message. That you heard over and over and over and over again, I am long-suffering, God says, but that doesn't mean forever suffering. In that day, there will be no words from God, and you will run everywhere looking for it. Now, it also means, because they have the, old, they have the Torah, don't they? 
And at this point in time, this late date, they have other books as well, don't they? They absolutely do. But you know what it also most likely means? You'll even run to the temple, the tabernacle, or to the, to the uh, synagogue. You'll run to those. And you're, you're going to find there's going to be no word, words from God. Why? Because of the destruction of the happening. And where are they going to target first? They're going to wipe out the synagogues. They're going to wipe out the temple. Why? Because they, in the ancient Near East, if they destroy the place of worship, the idea is they've destroyed your God. So they go fast and quickly to the synagogues, the temples, start wiping them out. So whether it is a prophet or whether it's the actual scrolls, you're going to, no matter where you look, you are going to find no words from God. It's an interesting statement. If I can do a little modern day application of this one before we get to the big picture. You know, it's almost like he's saying there comes a point in time in people who claim to be God's people, because we know there's only a faithful remnant. Scriptures are very clear about that. There comes a point in time when we, because of difficulties or whatever, we, we rush off to hear a word from God and we look at a scripture, we look at the Bible, and all we see is what? Words on a page. They're not hope. They're not, they're not life. Because we have looked elsewhere. We've pursued elsewhere. We have other gods. We're caught up in other things. We go, we look for God's word. We look for words from God. And it's just not found. Verse 13, in that day, the lovely virgins and the, love, and the young men will faint for thirst. In that day, when the judgment comes, when the final judgment comes, the picture here is, if you think that somehow, people of Israel, that you can escape this, hear this. In that day, the most vibrant, the strongest, the young ones, the healthy ones. That's what he means. The young virgins. Or the lovely virgins. Referring to their youngness, their vitality. And the young men, those who are at their peak of strength. What's going to happen to them? They also will faint from thirst. And that's not talking about physical thirst. That's a given. They also will faint from thirst. And then in the last verse of the text, he throws this out. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Now what in the world does verse 14 mean? I bet you're thinking. What is that all about? Glad you're asking the question. Because it's very interesting. When he says the first two lines, two major lines of verse 14, those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, is very interesting. Because in Dan and um, in Samaria, the people of the ten northern tribes set up, ready for this, to... This should sound familiar. What do you think they set up there? Two what? Any idea? Golden calves. Golden calves. Sound familiar? Does it sound familiar? Golden calves? Where have we heard about a golden calf before? Out, out at the base of Mount Sinai. Who did it? Who set it up? Aaron did, didn't he? And here we have in this late date, it's not like they don't know about the golden calf by Sinai. At this late date, what they do up in, up in Samaria? What they do in Dan? They set up two golden calves. And what was the purpose for the golden calves in Dan and Samaria? The purpose for the two calves in, gold, in golden calves in Dan and Samaria 
were to aid in worshiping, supposedly, Yahweh. Just like Aaron's golden calf was. They're still trying to do some form, practice some form of perfunctive worship. Doing the activities of worship. They're still attempting to dress it all up, but their hearts are far from God. Same as what was said in Samaria. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, that is, those who swear by what ought to be, they ought to realize, condemns them. Those who look to what ought to be, what they ought to be recognizing as self-condemning in Samaria, and those who say, as your God lives, O Dan, referencing Yahweh, not the golden calf. As your God, Yahweh, lives, O Dan, but they're by default and by just time, it just happens, what are they really worshiping? The golden calf. They're worshiping something else. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and lastly, as the way of Beersheba lives, interesting statement, Beersheba was the entry into the promised land, one of the uh, intended entries into the promised land. And when he says, when, when Amos says, as the way of Beersheba lives, is the idea Beersheba was understood as a sign of God's blessing, and they're playing off of that, but they're missing the point. In other words, they're they're saying they're crying out for God to help them, but they're not they're not at all interested in the God who they're crying out to. They're just not interested. And what does he say? They shall fall and never rise again. What do we do with this text? What do we do with chapter 8? I want to expand our understanding of chapter 8 and apply it into our lives today. The people of Israel had the law. They had the, the, the Ten Commandments and the entirety of the law presented in Exodus and Leviticus, restated in Deuteronomy. They had it. They knew it. It was taught. They memorized it by, by the time they were 12. It was preached every Saturday. And during the week, too. But they missed some really important things. Let me just present to you some of the things they missed. They missed the fact that the law served a purpose, and the purpose was to condemn them and to show they needed a redeemer. That was the point of the law. Jesus said it himself, didn't he? The law's purpose is to point you to me, Jesus said. It was really clear. They missed that. They missed the condemnation. They missed the point that it pointed them to a redeemer that had been prophesied, had been promised. <clears throat> they missed the point that they could not completely keep the law. And in not completely keeping the law, they would be what? Condemned. They couldn't keep the law. Go back to it again. Condemnation. They missed the point that what they needed more than anything else was God's mercy. You see, knowing the law and learning of the law by its nature would condemn and show how needful we were and how absolutely needy and hopeless we were. Which would ultimately cause the hearer of the law, if the Spirit's working in them, to cry out for God's mercy. Because he's their only hope. See, people missed all that as they fought to try to follow the law. And ultimately, as they fought to try to follow the law, the law, ultimately what happened was there was a, an attempt, a continuing attempt to follow the law, but not a worship of the law giver. It was a dressed-up worship of the law giver, but really the whole focus was on 
keeping the law, and then we would and then it got even worse because then he started conveniently ignoring parts of the law. <coughs> What's interesting, I would argue, this is where we go into the transfer into our era today. The church area called you will. What's interesting is too often in the church we don't find any of what ought to be. Too often in the church we don't find a, a very clear recognition. What I need more than anything else is my God to be merciful to me. What I find is, if we look, we see it, we're not ultimately people who are saying, what I need more than anything else is redeemer. Oh, we'll say the words, won't we? We'll say the words, I need a redeemer. And we'll say, praise the Lord for a redeemer, Jesus, right? Won't we? But the evidence of our lives is radically different from that, isn't it? Is it not true that too often the evidence of the life of someone who claims to be a believer all too often is not, a, if I use the term, a Christocentric, a Christ-centered life, a Christ-consumed life, a Christ-worshipping life? Quite to the contrary, what it ends up being is still to this day a law-focused life. And we forget the law points us to the Redeemer, the fulfiller of the law. And so as a result, we find ourselves today, just like in Amos's day, we find ourselves doing what? Worshipping the golden calf. Don't we? We find ourselves worshiping the created thing versus the creator. We find ourselves worshiping our desires, and our desires are not Christ. They're not Christ-informed. They're not Christ-focused. They're not Christ-glorifying. They're Steve-glorifying. That's what they are. We hear the words, all things are from him, through him, to him, to him be glory forever. Amen. And quite to the contrary, we live our lives, all things are for me, to me, be glory forever. Amen. See, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Unless we forget, granted it's the Old Testament, but unless we forget, we are described as spiritual Israel. Which is both a good thing and a scary thing. As we've said in previous days, previous studies, in the Old Testament there was a remnant that, that was faithful and was saved. In the New Testament there's a remnant that was faithful and saved. The point of the text that we see for us today is you and I are desperately in need of God's mercy. You and I are desperate for God's graciousness. We are not desperate to go out and keep the law today. You realize that? Here's the crazy thing. I said it before, I'll say it again. Here's the crazy thing. If the people would repent and turn to God in worship from the heart, obviously driven by the Spirit, you know what happened? The Holy Spirit is powerful, is he not? And when he is at work in people, what happens? And by the way, that turning of repenting is also driven by the Spirit. What happens? The result is the people who the Spirit are working in, they begin to exhibit what? Change. They begin to exhibit, in the New Testament, fruit. They begin to exhibit obedience, but it's being driven by what? By the love of God, which is being driven by the Spirit. <clears throat> the Spirit transforms them. In the New Testament, it's the same thing, isn't it? 
See, we, we tend to fall in the trap of thinking, if only I do better, God will be pleased. And God said, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I will do great and amazing things to my people and through my people. And I will change your heart so that you will love me. And in loving you, what? You'll worship me. And in worshiping me in spirit and truth, what will happen? I will begin to, by the Spirit, change and bear fruit and glorify God. And lo and behold, be part of the friend. We get it all backwards. Forever. No, but the remnant don't. That's pretty clear in the scriptures. But for those who don't turn to God, for those who don't cry out for mercy, for those who don't by the Spirit repent and believe, Within God's covenant people. Again, I want to emphasize that. Within God's covenant people. I will not pass this way again, God says. I will not. So the question before us out of Amos chapter chapter 8 is the same as it's been all the way through in the first seven chapters. And that is simply, am I really a worshiper of God? That's the question. Am I really a worshiper of God? Has God really saved me? Has he really called me? Has he really saved me? Is he at work in me? Am I a repentant one? Is God drawing me to repentance? Is he, is he causing in my heart grieving over my sin? Grieving over my rebellion? <coughs> grieving over my forgetting him? And drawing me to repentance? And as a result of coming to repentance, come away rejoicing in Him, loving and glorying in Him. Still struggling, still battling. It's a war, isn't it? But is that happening in me? Because that's what happens in the in in the repentant ones. That happens in the in the remnant ones. That happens Old Testament, New Testament for those who are in Christ. So if I could just close with this, I would just say, as God has said repeatedly, if we seek him, we will find him what? If we seek him with all our heart. If we, if we drink of the spring of living water, out of us will flow rivers of living water. If we drink of the well that is in the ground, we will thirst again. But if we drink of the water he gives us, we shall never thirst again. Amen? Let us drink deeply, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, help us. Because we are a people who wander. We are a people who create other gods. We are people who ignore you. And as a result of ignoring you, we ignore what you say. And we desperately need your mercy. We desperately need you to be gracious to us, to open our eyes to see. We desperately need you to bring us to repentance, produce life in us. These are not things we can do. We are helpless. So we ask you to fulfill your promises. Draw us close. And bring us to worship in you. In your name I pray. Amen.